Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Mort Zachter about his book, Red Holtzman, The Life and Legacy of a Hall of Fame Basketball Coach. This is Mort's third book, the first two being Doe, a Memoir, and Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life. Mort Zachter, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul, how are you? Thanks for having me. Good. Thanks for joining us. We, I really appreciate it. Uh, Mort, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay. I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Uh, I went to Brooklyn College. I studied accounting. Uh, I was a good son. My father said, you need to make, get a job, become a CPA. And I did, even though I always wanted to be a writer. And uh, I made a career of doing that. And I even went to law school at night and then did some estates and trusts. And then uh, in my uh, mid-30s, I kind of had a revelation that uh, my Lower East Side immigrant family, who I always thought was rather poor, was actually very well off. And uh, that became the subject of my first book called Doe, a memoir where Doe has a double meaning. They had a day-old bake shop on Lower East Side, but they also looked like they were poor, but they were in, in actuality quite uh, successful and well-off. Uh, and that enabled me, uh, after 9-11, which impacted me greatly, because when I worked as a CPA, I worked on the 101st floor of One World Trade Center. And after 9-11, I decided I could kind of pull the plug on uh, being a CPA and tax attorney and working in my writing. So that's what I did. And uh, I wrote Doe a memoir, and it won a literary prize, a publication prize, and I had my five minutes of fame. Uh, um, And then I wrote, after that, I wrote a biography of Gil Hodges. I was fortunate enough uh, in 1969 to be growing up in Brooklyn, and the Mets won their first championship that year. And also for my third book, Red Holtzman, the Knicks in 1969-70 season won their very first championship. So those became the subject of my uh, other books. Thanks for that intro, Mort. That's fascinating about the whole 9-11 angle. Um, Could you tell our listeners what prompted you to write about Red Holtzman? I'm I'm interested. I, I was with Gil Hodges and I was with Holtzman. I guess I like people who are really good at what they do, but they're pretty low-key about it, as opposed to being their own, uh, their own uh, parade master or carnival barker. Uh, and he was a really great coach, but he basically subsumed his own uh, promoting himself. And even in interviews, when he was at the height of his fame, uh, he basically would just tell the writers to go talk to his players, to talk to Willis Reed, to talk to Walt Frazier, to talk to Dave DeBusher or Bill Bradley. He really kind of deflected interest in himself. And I think in a way it, he was modest, but 
he was also very brilliant in that he realized the less he said, the less likely it was that he would say something improper to the press and create a headline that would uh, be trouble uh, in his relationship with his players. It's evident that you conducted a great deal of research for this book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your research process? Okay. Uh, My first step, and I I think for people who who ever always want to write a book, the best thing to do is to be able to interview people who knew your subject and knew them well. But that's not always an easy thing if it's a fairly well-known subject. People are uh, who knew him... You know, they want to make sure they're not saying anything improper. So my first stop was I contacted Bill Bradley, who was a U.S. senator from New Jersey and was one of the starting players on the Knicks championship teams and is a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame and was uh, in 1965 was the top college player in America. But he was very forthcoming and very helpful. And at the end of the interview, he said to me, did you hear anything from Phil? And he was referring to Phil Jackson. And the answer was, I hadn't. And just at the time I started to write this book, Phil Jackson had just been fired as the president of the New York Knicks. And it probably wasn't. He really didn't want to talk about his Nick years. It wasn't uh, the right time. But Bill Bradley said to me, oh, uh, I think you'll be hearing from Phil. And about a, a week later, uh, I got an email from Phil to the effect of, I heard you really gave it to Bill Bradley. Um, I'd be glad to talk with you, and we subsequently were able to speak. So I interviewed all anyone who I could get a hold of who knew him. And then the other thing you want to get is original source documents or anything that uh, was said that uh, by the source. And in this case, I was really lucky. I went to the New York Public Library and... In the um, 60s into the 70s, interviews were done for uh, um, a Jewish organization to kind of document the 20th century Jewish history. Holtzman was Jewish, and he was considered to be at that time one of the greatest basketball coaches uh, in, in America. And they interviewed him, and it was a tape and a recording that I had never seen cited anywhere else. So that became another major source of the book. And I must say, as a third thing, which um, is interesting, Holtzman had one daughter, Gail, and she is very much like himself, very reticent to speak with the press and and really reveal much about themselves. And when I interviewed her, I discovered that in the basement of her home, they kind of had a whole museum of uh, the history of Red Holtzman, including original source documents, contracts, and including even... Uh, Holtzman had been a scout for the Knicks before he became the coach. He was the Knicks scout, chief scout, for almost a decade before he became the coach. And they had all of the originals of the reports that he wrote when he evaluated college players. And we're talking about college players from Jerry West and Oscar Robertson and even guys like Pat Riley uh, to some of the stars on his Knicks team but uh, I wasn't really, I wasn't granted access to that and some other things. So that was a little frustrating, but I worked around it. But you have to work with what you get. So, um, and then also to fill in, you look at, at uh, secondary sources, um, newspapers concurrent from the time and the like. Um, research is a big part of this. And in order to write a really good book, 
you really need access and a forthcoming subject. In this case with Holtzman, I got most of the way, but not all the way. I would have liked to have more information. I guess a good biographer always wants more. Sure. And I'd imagine it's difficult when obviously the subject is no longer with us and his, his wife is no longer with us. So, and many of his contemporaries, of course, are no longer with us. Right. Um, can you just give our listeners a little, a little info about Red's life before professional basketball, where he was from, what his childhood was like? Right. He grew up, uh, he was born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He grew up in Brooklyn. And uh, he was born in 1920. So he really, his life kind of paralleled the development of professional basketball in the United States. And when he first started to play in high school, he went to Franklin K. Lane High School, and he was a good player, and he was uh, an all-city player. We're talking about an era when basketball didn't have a 24-second clock, when you could, if you got a lead late in the game, you could just dribble the ball. And he became an excellent ball handler. He was a backcourt player. And then... Uh, he went to college uh, at first at the University of Baltimore for a semester, and then he transferred to CCNY. And believe it or not, at the time he went, CCNY was one of the better basketball teams in the United States. And he benefited from playing for a man named Nat Holman, whose name is long forgotten. But in the first half of the 20th century, Nat Holman was considered to be the best basketball player in the United States. Uh, he was, believe it or not, even though he was a Jewish person from the Lower East Side, he was a star on the team known as the Original Celtics. Um, and he taught, he was a wonderful coach, and Holtzman learned a great deal of the techniques he would use himself as a coach from that Holman. Then he finished uh, at CCNY um, basically to enlist in the Navy. And in the Navy, what he basically did, he was such a good basketball player, he played on the Navy basketball team in games against Army and the Marines and the Air Force. And then after the war, he went to um, uh, basically uh, play for the, a team called the Rochester Royals. Uh, t- today, it's the Sacramento team. And that's how he evolved from uh, his childhood through to the beginning of his professional basketball career. I loved... Um... Excuse me. I loved in you know in the book um, reading about his time in the Navy and uh, just the, the little anecdote that he was friends with Phil Rizzuto as a as a lifetime Yankee fan. That was just a cool little uh, nugget that was in there. Yeah, um, you know it, it's interesting, and this will show you how competitive people are. Re- they Phil Rizzuto, Red Holtzman, and actually Red Arback were all at the same time in the same place on that Navy base in Virginia during World War II. But neither Holtzman nor Arbach ever wrote, and and Holtzman wrote a number of books and Arbach wrote a number of books. They never talk about engaging with each other during that time, but you know because they were both involved in basketball, they must have, because later during their professional career, the rivalry between the Knicks and uh, the Celtics was incredibly fierce. And uh, they were lifetime competitors. But yeah, that Phil Rizzuto anecdote was uh, a cute one. I had, I, I had read that before. It was in one of Holtzman's uh, own books. Um, for those people, Phil Rizzuto was a, a Hall of Fame shortstop for the Yankees, and he was an announcer for decades, and he had this incredible persona. And uh, interesting the way people connect. 
so you mentioned that uh, you mentioned before that that Red was a scout for the Knicks. Um, of course, it, it, you you talk about in the book how he initially coached the the Hawks team. Um, can you can you give our listeners a little idea of how he became that the head coach of the Knicks? Right. Um, he he um, after his playing career was over. He had a very good friend named Fuzzy Levain, who actually he knew from high school. And Fuzzy Levain was um, the coach of um, the Milwaukee team, Milwaukee Hawks, that are today the Atlanta Hawks. And uh, he asked Holtzman, who was late in his career, to come in and play for him. And he did. And shortly thereafter, Fuzzy Levain got fired. And the owner of the Hawks, Ben Kerner, said, look, Red, I know you're good friends with Fuzzy, but... There's a job here for you. And Holtzman had already been perceived, even when he was a player, as kind of being a coach on the floor. He, was, he, he, he would just have that knack for seeing the game in a way that very few people do. And so Kerna hired him as the coach. He said, even if you're upset, I fired Fuzzy. It's not going to bring him back. And so he took the job. But uh, Holtzman was the wrong fit with the Hawks. Um, he wasn't all that comfortable. They subsequently moved to St. Louis, and um, he, his family, um, his wife, and his young daughter stayed back in New York. And the the players on that team uh, later were coached after Holtzman was fired by Alex Hainem. They needed a, a more dominating kind of coach. Holtzman was a more laid back, in some ways, coach in terms of. Uh, you know, he would yell at the players, he would be tough, but um, he just didn't fit into St. Louis with some of the players there, and uh, it didn't work out. They were a losing team, and uh, he then was unemployed, and Fuzzy Levain again came to the rescue. At that point, Fuzzy Levain was uh, a scout for the Knicks, and he then became a coach for the Knicks, and Fuzzy Levain got uh, Holtzman a scouting job with the Knicks and he held that job for nine years and he basically saw in uh, in their college careers all basically every star player the Knicks pretty much ever had when Holtzman was a coach and so he really had a great understanding of the players uh, from that time as a scout so uh, uh, it was a kind of natural progression and even though he wouldn't really admit it, Holtzman always wanted to come back, I think, and coach on some level because he was a prideful man. And after being fired, it was kind of uh, uh, a matter. He wanted to show he could still do it and even coached in Puerto Rico for a number of summers and led uh, a team there to championships. And that was an, uh, a wonderful uh, experience for him, too, coaching in Puerto Rico under the international basketball rules and with a different kind of team. It, it, it kind of taught him because things could get kind of crazy uh, in Puerto Rico because the fans were intense uh, and uh, would often bet a lot on the game and be uh, pretty much uh, really nuts. Sometimes they, the coaches and, and the players, after they left opposition courts in Puerto Rico back then in the 60s, uh, would need police protection. Um, I found out a lot about what things were like uh, playing and coaching in the summer in Puerto Rico in that summer league from Ed Rush, who was for many years uh, an NBA referee who coached, who refereed back there in uh, Puerto Rico in the 60s. 
So you t- you talked a little bit about uh, Red's coaching style that he was kind of laid back and um it was evident that his players appreciated that. There was a line in the book from Dick Barnett, uh, something about to the effect that the best thing that, that Red did was stay out of the way or get out of their way. Um, right. Do you, I don't, do you remember what that line was exactly? I'm butchering um, it. But. He, he left us alone. Dick, Dick, Barnett, sure. Dick Barnett is the only player in that 69-70 team who, by the way, the anniversary of the team, will, the 50th anniversary of that team will be celebrated at Madison Square Garden on March 21st next month, uh, I believe, during a game against the Golden State, uh, probably at halftime, during a game against the Golden State Warriors. Uh, Barnett is the only player on that team of the starting players who's not in the Hall of Fame, and he was a great, great player in his day, but he was an, had an incredible sense of humor, very fast, and was a really important piece of the team. But that, you know, he's been interviewed so many times. And when I, he knew I was looking for positive statements about Holtzman. And there he was saying the best thing about Holtzman was he just kind of left us alone. That was his way to give me a little dig. Because, yeah, you might be writing about Holtzman. Let me tell you, he had great players. And Holtzman knew he had great players. Um, and, uh, okay. Um, he, basically, Holtzman's style was, he had two rules uh, that uh, he insisted his players follow upon. He didn't overcoach. There are some coaches, and I guess today it's probably even more true, where the, play, where the coaches would call every play. They'd give a play call from the, from the bench as the team brought the ball down the court and basically overcoached. Holtzman said, look, on defense, see the ball, which meant very simply, every time you're on the, uh, playing defense, you've got to keep your eye on your man and know exactly where the ball is on the court, which is not always an easy thing. And he, he would instruct the players how to do that. And the other thing on offense was very simple. Hit the open man, which means pass the ball. And if on that team there was one great protege of his coaching abilities, it was Phil Jackson. Because... Phil Jackson took that concept of hit the open man, and that is really, if you get the core of what Jackson had evolved in Chicago and then in, with, the, with the Lakers and won all those championships with the triangle offense, at the core of it is it's pass the ball to the open guy. And those are the very simple rules. And Holtzman's other rule was when the team's on the road, the hotel bar was his. The players had to go drink someplace else. Um, so yeah, I love that. I love that last rule. Uh, yeah. So so um, the, the players appreciated that, and they were gifted enough to know what to do. He was blessed with one of the best amalgamations of teams. He virtually had an all star team as his starting five. Yeah, and and what I was going to add to that is, it's not just that they were great players. That it's that they were such an intelligent group of players. Right. I mean, you mentioned yes. Dick Barnett. I mean, he went on to get a Ph.D., I know, after his career. You have uh, DeBusher was a player coach at 24 years old for Detroit. That's uh, right. Willis Reed went on to coach. Uh, obviously, Bill Bradley became a senator and ran for president. It was a, a very intelligent. And later, Jerry Lucas was had an, this incredible memory. Um, it was a very intelligent group of players. So I wonder how 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 much of his approach with them do you think was 
simply his personality slash coaching coaching style or or how much of it was a, a reaction to the the specific group of players that he had in New York? But, uh, right. I think um, Holtzman's rules where he gave uh, the players the ability to basically call their own plays only work when you, when you have unselfish players, not just intelligent players, but unselfish, who aren't looking to play one-on-one ball, who aren't looking to just pad their own statistics because they want to, you know, make more money for themselves. Um, They're looking for what's going to win a championship. And so, as Bill Bradley told me, yes, Red Holtzman, he told me, was, quote, the right man in the right place at the right time. And he, he, though, added a great deal. There was value added because when he took over in 67, the, their team had a, an unusual number of players, all of whom deserved playing time. So what he put into the in was somewhat revolutionary at the time. He had them pat play a full court press every time they were on defense. Typically, you only see a full court press end-to-end defense um, in the last few minutes of a half or when a team is way behind. But he had the players, and he rotated them in and out, and the players loved it because they all got playing time. And that was the beginning of, of making defense as important for the players as, as what they did on the offensive end. And they all bought into that and all took great pride in the, their defense. And that was the first time um, I, I think you ever had screamed out in the stadium. They used to yell at, in the garden, and it basically the garden reverberated with the chance of defense, defense, um, uh, which was, I think, probably amongst the first times you ever heard that in a basketball stadium. So you, me- you mentioned that, of course, Red's most famous and most accomplished protege was Phil Jackson. Can you talk a little about a little bit about the relationship between the two of them? Um, I think it was kind of they were destined to meet. Uh, Holtzman had scouted Jackson. Um, he played for a, a, a small uh, Western college. Um, I'm thinking it was. North Dakota or South Dakota, I'm I'm blanking on which, but it was a small school, but Holtzman saw something in Jackson that really very few other people did, and he drafted him fairly high up. He was this gawky, ungainly guy. Um, He was pretty good offensively in college, and he came into the pros and he injured his back. He had a serious uh, spinal kind of injury. And after that, he was really just used for defensive purposes. But Holtzman early on told him um, that he saw the court, he saw the game. And uh, Jackson combined that basketball ability and that confidence where he had this great coach telling him he really had an eye for the game with his ability, you know, that whole Zen thing. Uh, Jackson's parents were both ministers. Uh, so he kind of was in that unusual place of being this kind of uh, person who combined the ability to communicate with his players and the ability to understand the game. And I think 
a lot of his philosophies of uh, being laid back and trying to be patient with difficult players came from how he saw Holtzman uh, handle some uh, of his players, uh, especially later on when, when Holtzman had some, some more uh, players who didn't really buy into the system. Uh, so I think, I think they probably, it wasn't just mutual respect. I think there was this deep affection because when you speak, when I spoke with some people uh, regarding Jackson and Holtzman, it was self-evident, especially with some of the writers who've covered Jackson over the years. They would say, like, invariably, when you would interview him, he would somewhere in the interview get in something about Holtzman. I think these were two men who really uh, loved each other. You you touched early on about Holtzman's humility, and that's that's certainly uh, one of the main themes throughout the book, from his his modest home in Cedarhurst to the way he, you know, spoke to the media. Do you think that was really, I mean, do you think that was who he was and that was it, or was, was part of that a coaching media strategy? It was, it was, it was both. He was a savvy, as I say in the introduction, he was a smart, savvy man. He was a humane and decent man. And he was a, a, a pretty un, um, shrewd guy. So it was a little bit of both. But I give in, in the introduction, I think it worth mentioning that the story that I, I found out about when Holtzman was, was uh, coaching the St. Louis Hawks in the mid-1950s, they had one black player, Chuck Cooper, who had been an All-American player at University of Pittsburgh. They were playing down in Louisville and... Uh, down in the mid-50s in Louisville, there was not segregated basketball. The Hawks were playing the Minneapolis team that today is the Lakers. And when Chuck Cooper, this proudful black man, got on the court, the people, this was in Shreveport, just laced into him. And it was some of the worst. I found out about this interviewing one of the players on the team. And it was horrific what was, was being said to him and shouted out at him. And Holson pulled him out of the game. But in the, later in the game, in the, in the second half, there was a technical foul. And at that time, a player from the bench could come in and shoot the foul shot. And Chuck Cooper was, was amongst the better free throw shooters on the team. Holtzman put Chuck Cooper into the game to save face. He didn't have to do it. He had a guy on the court named Bob Pettit, who was one of the greatest players in NBA history, a very good foul throw, a free throw shooter also. But Holtzman did that not necessarily to win the game. He did it as a humane thing so Chuck Cooper could show them, here you go. And he looked and he sank the free throw. And when I researched it, Chuck Cooper's line for that game was um, one point, that one free throw, and like three personal fouls, and, and that was it. So, yes, his humility was uh, true, but there was all, and there was a, a purpose to it. But I think if there was a certain compassion and understanding to him, and I, and that's one of the reasons as I researched into him, uh, I really wanted to write about him. And I think the best thing, the best story about to show his humility and how he didn't want to show people up is at the end of his career and, and the last number of years when he was in the Knicks, especially the last year, it was, it was, it, it was a disaster. Um, they had one player on the team 
who was a great, great player, Michael Ray Richardson, whose name has been lost. But unfortunately, he's also, the, I think, the only player in NBA history who was thrown out of the NBA because of drug use. And he hadn't given his full effort. And, and at the end of the season, one of the reporters asked Holtzman, did the players give their full effort during the season? And rather than showing anybody up, he just said, you know, I'm not going to comment on that. And I don't think I'm going to comment on now. And then he thought about it for a minute. He said, no, I'm never going to comment on that. So that was the kind of person that he was. And um, it, it was, it was, it was, um, uh, it's hard to know a person because I didn't obviously meet him. And it's only from interviews and whatnot. But I really think the humility was as great as his savvy as to keep quiet with the press. And, uh, you know, in addition to his humility, another word that comes to mind after reading your book, and again, the book is called Red Holtzman, The Life and Legacy of a Hall of Fame Basketball Coach. Another word that comes to mind is loyalty. Loyalty to the Knicks, loyalty to his players, uh, loyalty to Fuzzy Levain. Yes. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of Red? You know, um, Red, because he won those championships, became probably, you know, one of the highest compensated coaches in the NBA. Fuzzy LeVay never really made much of his professional career, and he was a very talented player, and he was a pretty good coach. Um, and uh, apparently when, when Holtzman died, I found out that he left a specific bequest to Fuzzy Levain, uh, which just shows you the he gave back. And also, when Holtzman was uh, the coach of the Knicks, he made sure to hire Fuzzy Levain to be a scout for the Knicks so that he got a paycheck. He, he, he played it on through. He, he was, there was this compassion to him, and it showed with uh, Levain. And, of course, no conversation about Red Holtzman would be complete without mentioning his wife, Selma. Uh, it sounds like they had a special marriage. Can you talk a little bit about their relationship? Yeah, they were married for 50 years, and she loved basketball and went to pretty much every Nick, a Nick home game. And she was a regular in the garden, and after he was no longer a coach, he would uh, go to the games with her. And... Um, uh, she would tell him on the rides back to Cedarhurst, uh, you know, especially when he was coaching, she would ask questions. Why didn't you play this guy for a certain number of minutes? You played mm-hmm. this guy too long. And Holtzman would joke about it, but he would listen to what she had to say. And she actually did one of the most unusual things. And I actually saw some of the, uh, one of the, the scorecards she kept, you know, in that era, it wasn't unusual for people to keep a scorecard if they went to a baseball game. But she kept a scorecard of basketball games, and she did it religiously. Every game she went to, she came track of, kept track of the number of points, assists, um, uh, and rebounds that a player had. Um, she was really legitimately a crazy basketball fan, and uh, they were really quite a team. And in terms of... Um, she kind of handled a lot of stuff, especially at home when, when they were younger and when their finances were up and down. She made sure that everything was taken care of at home so that Holtzman could focus on his coaching and, I guess, his scouting at, at a later point. So they were a great team. And um, 
I include it in the book as an appendix, as opposed to the typical appendix of the coach's coaching career and statistics, which anyone can just Google. I put in um, Selma's chicken soup recipe because uh, Willis Reed told me every year, Willis Reed was a center on those great championship teams. He's a Hall of Fame player. Every year he would get this cold over the basketball season and she would bring to him her chicken soup. So I included her recipe for that as appendix in the book. <laughs> you just mentioned Willis. Yeah, of course, when 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 Red left the Knicks, when he stopped coaching the first time, he was replaced by Willis Reed as coach. And, and then he later came back and replaced Willis when it didn't work out with Willis. Um, was that a tough decision for him to come back a second time and specifically to replace you know, one of his, his, his former captain, really? Yeah, I, I think he wanted to make sure that in no way did he influence that decision. You know, if the top of an organization isn't functioning correctly, then there's inconsistencies, and that was a great inconsistency. At the end of Holtzman's first time coaching the Knicks, you know, all the newspapers are writing, he's too long in the tooth, he doesn't relate to the players. Then they hired Reed, who was a much younger guy and closer with the players. And then they fired him a year and a half later. And then they said, oh, we needed a veteran like Holtzman. Uh, so it was hard for him to, to replace. Um, uh, leadership makes a big difference. The last time the Knicks were consistently winners in the 90s, they had Patrick Ewing as their star player. Dave Chekets was the president of the Knicks, and I interviewed him for the book because he had a wonderful relationship with Red Holtzman, and he brought Red Holtzman back to serve as what he referred to as his key man, meaning he was the guy he could go to on the QT to discuss anything about the team, uh, and he respected Holtzman because Holtzman had been the guy who brought the team the championships. He had scouted the players, and um, he had coached them, and... Uh, I think that whole incident with Reed only being there a year and a half was a function uh, of poor management. And I think Reed should have been given probably a a longer time. And Holtzman would later say um, that probably if he made any mistake in his coaching career, it was coming back for that second time because he just was not as successful as the first time around. And I think he just didn't enjoy it uh, as much. um, it, it was yeah. uh, it was a trying time in Nick's history, and uh, I, I just hope that the only hope I can give Nick fans today was when Holtzman took over in 1967, in the middle of the season, coaching the team. The Knicks had previously gone through eight consecutive losing seasons. Now, albeit during that time, they built up uh, had high draft picks and built up some terrific players who then developed and, and were the nucleus of the championship teams. You know, the Knicks most likely this season will be their seventh losing season. We can only hope there's some gems on the roster that will <laughs> develop in the next few seasons. I don't know if they will or they won't. Uh, I hope, I think at least one will, I think, but we'll see what happens. But I wanted to give Nick fans some hope that those great championship teams that Reed, that, uh, Reed was on and Holtzman coached, they only came after an incredibly long losing period, almost a decade. Right. Yeah, I, the the Knicks have a couple of young, good young players, but there there are no Willis Reeds or Walt Frazier's on the roster. 
No, no. We'll, <laughs> but, well, you know, maybe this year in the draft or next year, but. We can only hope, but. Um, yeah. I think that's what made Holtzman so unique. There are only two franchises in the NBA that still play in the same city when the league was created. That's the Boston Celtics and the New York Knicks. <laughs> the Knicks have won two championships in like 73 or 74 years. The Celtics have won more than any other team. I think it's 16 championships. Yeah. Well, Ward, I've taken enough of your time. I'll ask you one final question that I like to ask of all of my guests. What is your all-time favorite sports book? Ah, that's a very good one. Um, uh, the David Halberstam wrote a wonderful book about the 19, I think it was 41 season, called uh, uh, Summer of 41. And that is one of my favorite books because he, he was a gifted, gifted writer. He's gone now. He, he didn't just write about sports, but he was able to get, because he was such a famous Pulitzer Prize winning writer, he was able to get access to guys like um, Ted Williams. And he really was, wrote a wonderful book. Yeah, Halberstam was fantastic. He wrote a great, uh, great basketball book, too, called Breaks of the Game which was fantastic about kind of the history of the NBA and uh, it, it kind of focused on the, the 1977 Portland Trailblazers, that Bill Walton, great Bill Walton team, but it, it touched on the whole history of the league. And like you said, he was just such a magnificent writer that I, th- you know, he could have written about snails and it would have been fascinating. That's right. Um, <laughs> that's right. And I'll just end it. One reference back to Holtzman. Holtzman said, that Bill Walton was a good enough passer that he could have played point guard. Wow. Yeah, that's something. Okay. All right, well, Mort, thank you thank so you. much for your time. Um, again, to, to our listeners, the book is called Red Holtzman, The Life and Legacy of a Hall of Fame Basketball Coach. Um, if you're a basketball fan, certainly a Knicks fan, but a basketball fan in general, uh, definitely check out this book. It's... it's uh, Red was a fascinating figure and, um, you know, a big part of those great Knicks team success. So, Mort Zachter, thank you once again for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.